Welcome to the Business of Beverages, Drinks Industry Insights with Makers, Marketeers, and Mischief. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Beverages. I'm your host, Will Keating, and I'm joined from Astana in Kazakhstan by Mr. Podrick Foxy Fox. Uh, I'm actually in Almaty rather than Astana. <gasps> The other side of Kazakhstan. Mea culpa. I'm on the uh, I'm on the Uzbekistan side of Kazakhstan, but I will be in Astana towards the end of the week. So the obvious question is why? Well, you know, the opportunity comes up to visit one of the top ten land mass countries in the world. Uh, I took it. You know, it's not <laughs> every day you get to visit the eighth or ninth because I can't remember which one it is, biggest country in the world. It, it is incredible. So I don't know much about Almaty. Can can you fill us in? Well, I've been here about twenty minutes. And uh, coming out of the airport <laughs> seems to be a, a some sort of a, a scam going on. I, I think everybody's a taxi driver uh, across the country. All you have to do is literally put your hand out and somebody will pull in to collect you, whether they're a taxi driver or not. You agree a, a price with them and they drop you off. Uh, but thankfully, there was somebody here to, to collect me, so I didn't have to, to worry about that. Uh, got into the car. Uh, it took us about five minutes to reverse out of the car park in the airport because it was just mayhem with everybody driving in. Uh, we almost lost the front of the car exiting the airport. Uh, fairly positive we had a flat tire uh, most of the way back to the hotel. Um, but, but apart from that, it's been, a, it's been a good 20, 25 minutes. I have seen, I've seen the football stadium. That I have seen. And the ring road was where we spent most of our time. <laughs> <laughs> no bars you haven't passed any nightlife no, or anything 1 30 a.m here um so i think most people are in bed as they should be on a sunday night first of all salute your dedication for dialing into the podcast from almaty in kazakhstan you know that is a sentence that i have to say i was not expecting to say this week well to be fair i wasn't expecting to be texting you from the air over turkmenistan either <laughs> but here we are is, yeah. is this our first ever international episode I'm going to say yes. Well, no, well you, you, you went to Belgium. I suppose that kind of counts. But this is the first one where the two of us are in different countries. Yes, almost certainly. And, you know, I'm very happy to take correction if somebody can point us to another occasion when we were in different countries or continents. I do, I'm not sure our fans are that dedicated to the cause. No, I doubt it. But I do think that they will all be very interested to hear by the end of the week how you got on in Kazakhstan. Uh, are you going anywhere else interesting? Well, I think Kazakhstan on its own is, is quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like, what more do you want? Yeah, do you to want? be fair, that's pretty exotic. Like, I'm, now, I'm now the lad that you know who's been to Kazakhstan. <laughs> this this is very true. But you see, I am, I'm super excited about it because actually, you know, we are taking an eastward journey on the podcast today. So actually, I'm, I was wondering where you're going to go even further east because the whole uh, interview today that we're focused on the topic we're focused on is actually sake which obviously comes from japan yep which is okay uh, the far east i am looking forward to seeing what kazakhstan has to offer with uh its beverage culture uh, i'm not really sure what there is uh, but I'll, I'll report back on that on our next episode uh we we will await with bated breath your real report of, on kazakhstan, pakistan <laughs> kazakhstan beverages. there's a lot of standards here in fairness okay you say uh, yes indeed i do um, so we have for a long time been hoping to do an episode on sake uh, because simply put, it seems to me to be a fascinating category, one which is growing in popularity in export terms, but bizarrely seems to be falling in popularity quite sharply in Japan. So I don't know if you would have seen coverage recently. There was a, sort of a lot of coverage across the international press where the Japanese tax bureau was investing in ways in which they could encourage people to drink more sake. 
which is quite surprising as the rest of the world seems to be doing the opposite. Um, but yeah, the, the falling alcohol consumption in Japan is uh, the government are really losing out on tax money, I think, and they really want people to really embrace sake again. Yeah, and I think that this is probably maybe just a little bit of timing and a little bit of reporting of, of the issue, maybe you know being slightly slanted. You know, I think there are lots of countries that promote their national drinks. Uh, you know, the Irish government, you know, put money behind Irish whiskey, et cetera, et cetera. But not, uh, this particular case, it was done explicitly with the explanation of saying that uh, our tax take is falling. So we just, we want more tax, drink more sake. Hey, hey you, have you had a sake today? You better get on that. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to say that uh, we had a brilliant opportunity to talk to Kyoko Nagano, who is a sake expert. Uh, she's also involved in sake education and sake exporting, and she's an absolute authority on the current state of, in particular, the smaller, if you want to call them the craft producers in Japan. So I was able to get on a call with uh, Kyoko. I thought you would join us, but it, it turns out that you had better things to be doing. No, I just forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I had better things to do. I just plain forgot. As my, as my wife will tell you, if I don't have it written in the calendar, it doesn't happen. Well, let's see what you missed out on. So we're going to go straight into Kyoko Nagano. Um, my first job is to thank you for staying up late to do this interview. So you're in Tokyo at the moment. I know you're from Kawasaki, but it's late in the evening there. Is that right? Yes, it's a, it's not too late. It's 9 p.m., so not that bad. So hopefully we won't keep you past your bedtime, but I'm really thrilled to be able to have this conversation. For a very long time, I've been looking to learn more about sake. I can't say that I have a huge amount of knowledge. I really don't, but I am interested because I see sake more and more in Western markets, and I see sake education becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And I'm just curious about, about the product. So you run sake companies, you do a lot of sake education, you work with exporters and you work with, with breweries in, in Japan. And I'd love to know, can we start with a simple question? What is sake? Good question. So sake is not distilled alcohol. Some people think that sake is distilled, but it's brewed alcohol. So we say, you know, sake breweries, right? And um, it's made from rice, water, uh, and yeast. Um, actually, we there's a two important element to it. Um, we have a national mold called koji, which it can turn uh, the koji mold can turn starch into sugar. And then, if you add yeast to it, yeast will eat the sugar and create the alcohol and carbon dioxide. So that's It'll be fermented and um, it'll be sake. When when I was learning about sake, you know, the first thing somebody told me was probably what most people hear is that sake is rice wine. It, it, that's probably a, an incorrect description, is it? Mm, I think it's incorrect because obviously sake is not wine. Um, also, the br- it's brewed, so more, the fermentation is more similar to beer. Um so when you talk about wine, wine already, you know, wine is made from grape and grape already has sugar. Yes. So in order to make it into the alcohol, you need yeast, 
but it's not like it's not going to be like sake because uh, it's just going to be simple like mono fermentation. It can turn into sugar into alcohol easily because it already has the sugar, but sake doesn't have the sugar. It has starch. So it has to turn、um, starch into glucose. That means、um, multiple parallel fermentation is happening at the same time in the tank, which is quite unique to about this sake. Yes, because it's very unusual. So, so I'm, I'm clear that the concept is very different to wine. So, in wine, or indeed in cider, or, or indeed in, in something like mead, you, you essentially you have something that has simple sugars already that the yeast can eat. You squeeze the grape juice; the sugars are there. The fructose is there. If you squeeze the apples, the, the fructose is there.、Um, if you take the rice, though, as you say, they're long starches, and the yeast can't. Eat the starch. It needs to、uh, break that starch up. Now, for for beer or for other products like whiskies, often we'll we、we'll、use malted barley, and the, the enzymes in the malt would break down the starches, and that's why we we use it. But、mm-hmm. I'm curious. You don't malt the rice. You use a, a different method, a, a mold. You described it as a mold.、Uh, can you explain a little bit more about that specifically? Well. Japan is quite unique.、Um, we use mold quite often.、Uh, the koji mold,、um, we often use it in soy sauce making or miso making. So, a lot of the Japanese、um, culinary or the、um, condiments are all using this koji mold,、yes. and it's literally looking green. Um, it almost like blue cheese kind of a mold.、Yeah. So. When people think about like you know using the mold, it sounds yucky, right? But it's a healthy mold. <laughs> mold. It's、um, the terminology is called、uh, um, I'm, my because English is not my like a、uh, native tongue, but、uh, and sometimes the pronunciation can be a little bit tricky. But it's called aspergillus oryzae. Yes,、um, that's the terminology for koji spores. But yes, it is the bacteria. That is really important into turning the starch into sugar because、um, it has the the function of the enzyme can turn the starch、um, into sugar by you know cutting all the starch into small amino acids and that can turn into the、um, glucose. Yeah, so you end up with these small、um, saccharides, these small sugars that the yeast can then eat, and then. The, that presumably influences the flavor of the、um, of the drink as well, because you have this really interesting thing where the the aspergillus the, the the mold the koji mold is breaking down the starches, so it's doing a kind of a a pre fermentation, and then the yeast is is then feeding off those sugars as well. So you talk you you said it's a a multiple parallel fermentation system. It's it happens all at the same time. It doesn't happen. One at a time, does it? it you you can it can can it all be happening in the same tank? Yes, it's interesting. We call it moto, but that's the fermentation tank, and it's happening at the same time. Multiple multiple fermentation. So it's really interesting in a way、um, how the fermentation is working、uh, inside a tank. And then the yeast does its job. It'll it'll ferment those sugars. It'll produce alcohol. Um, carbon dioxide, but am I right in saying that most sake、uh, isn't is still not 
not fizzy. Is that correct? Is the CO2 lost to the atmosphere? There are, you know, a lot of people like namazake, which is unpasteurized sake, but it'll be more, how do you say, zingy. Sometimes you feel a little bit of bubbly because you still feel like enzyme and feel like it's alive. Yeah. And I personally love namazake. <laughs> That's my, my my favorite um types of drink because um, it's I feel the freshness of the sake. So that's the uh, the unpasteurized sake, uh, mm-hmm. and then what strength is is sake normally served at? Do, do, if, when it's mm-hmm. sold, is it beer strength? Is it around four or five percent ABV, or is it mm-hmm. much stronger? Much stronger, like fifteen to seventeen percent ABV. Um, some there are some of the low um, low sake, low alcohol content as well, like 5% or 8%, um, especially the sparkling sake. Uh, Mio is getting popular and you see it in the supermarket store. That's really low alcohol content. So considering that, it can be low, but generally speaking, the um, average is about like 15%. But if it's undiluted, it'll be like 70% or 19%. So it can be a little bit higher. If I ask about the industry then, so if that's the production process, that's how it's made, um, mm-hmm. do you have many sake breweries in Japan or you know, are there a few big players? Oh, there are a very um, big players in the sake industry and I guess uh, um, only like top seven breweries would account for like 90, over 90% of the production actually. So it's mm. really mass um giant um sake producers we we now have about 1200 sake breweries but of course there are um breweries that are kind of resting it's not yeah. like um ending the business but maybe sometimes they can't find someone who would inherit the brewery or sometimes the brewers is too old but currently about 1200 but the sad thing is when I was um, at the peak in, in 1970s, we used to have over 3,000 sake breweries. So mm. considering that, it's like one third. And also the production is also one third of the back in the day. And under the COVID situation, about 50 to 100 sake breweries went out of business. Well, the COVID really hit hard. So I think about 100 sake breweries went out of business um, in one year. But even though, um, even pre-COVID times, about 50 sake breweries went out of business. So it is actually a dying industry. So this decline then is is in sharp contrast to maybe if you look at beer breweries in in the West, where there's been a sharp explosion in, in beer breweries driven by consumer demand and then by government policies, which are helping to, to make lower um, tax and make it more attractive to invest in, in microbreweries. Has, has there been any sort of sign of a revival in, in the industry? There's still a big number of breweries there with over a thousand, you know, but are they, are they perhaps all doing the same traditional things? Or how do you tell a sake from one brewery versus another? Do they, you know, do they um, differentiate themselves very much? Well, some breweries are really good at um, branding. For instance, Dasai is very good at branding. Also, um, 
small breweries are not not really so because they're always you know they're really small and sometimes it's like a um elder brewer like 70 year old or 80 year old is still making sake so they're really in a very traditional um style um some of the brewers is like 80 (laughs) which is too um but he can't find anyone who would inherit the brewery so you know he's kind of resting but um there are a lot of breweries like that who cannot find someone who would um take over the brewery because it's not like a you know trending business it's kind of dying business so it's yeah. really hard to find someone who would take over but there are some of the breweries you know um who have come up with the younger generation um they are making like a sparkling sake or they're making a yuzu sake more of a f- um flavored sake so there are some of the breweries doing um so so it's not like fantastic um but still um, they're trying are their best to make it more attractive to the younger generation i'm i'm curious then if if the volume goes so low and and the you know the number of brewers is is very small and they're very elderly it must be a very manual job you know to actually brew the sake from scratch you know i i, I know from working in a brewery that you have to be fit and well to do it so are there are there sake breweries who have found different ways around you know this? Do they um, do they all brew sake all the time, or do they find some of them will will have you know maybe a a, a different way to to acquire sake from other brewers and then sell it as their own? A lot of sake breweries only brew in the winter time because it's very difficult to control the bacterial level in the summertime if you mm. don't have air conditioning. And a lot of the breweries don't have a good, you know, like air conditioning equipment or um, a lot of the um, reasonings. But most of the breweries only brew during the winter time. That is around from November and ending around like March or April. So only working about six months. So they sometimes, you know, hire the part timer just during that season. Um, some do employee, do have uh, employees like full time, but those breweries do have like air conditioning. So some of the breweries do, um, brew sake all season, but old facility, um, sake breweries, a lot of them do not brew all season. And when it comes to consumption, so how, how are people consuming sake? You know, is it, Anytime I've had sake, I've had it in a Japanese restaurant because unfortunately I've yet to be, to visit Japan. But how do ordinary Japanese people consume sake? So sake, I think, is very social drink, actually. So when you go, you know, with when you go out with the company co-workers or when you go out to izakayas, a lot of times you drink sake together. It's more like a social drink. But you always start with like beer. Some people like to start with beer. And um, as the alcohol consumption itself, beer, um, I mean, like sake only accounts for 5% of the um, alcohol industry, which is very low. Yes. Yeah, there are hardcore sake fans, but generally speaking, it's not very popular, even though it's a national drink, but it's not very popular, unfortunately. 
And, and why do you think that is? Why has it gone from something which was ubiquitous in the 1970s to, to being somewhat niche now? Is it, is it because the tastes of consumers have changed or have production methods changed? Has the flavor of sake changed? To be honest, flavor itself has really become much, much better. And I, even with, um, whenever I talk with my sake friends, um, they always say that uh, sake tastes so much better in 20 years. And a lot of breweries are making effort to making it more delicious. And also with, you know, with a sparkling sake or other flavor sake, they are making a lot of effort, but Unfortunately, there is a trend um, in the younger generation to drink more like a craft beer or mm-hmm. wine. They think that Western-style um, uh, drinks looks more attractive. And they always have a mindset that, um, oh, sake is like an elder's drink, right? Like my grandpa was drinking, so it's like a grandpa's drink, right? So a lot yeah. of younger generation think that it's like a grandpa's drink. That's true of many products that still manage to do a good job in terms of revival. So if, if I look at whiskey, whiskey is in, in really significant growth, but whiskey would have been seen as, a, as an old man's drink, perhaps, but has managed to reinvent itself and keep itself relevant. You can argue that, that a lot of it has to do with production methods and how people have changed, you know, getting more diverse flavors and, and being less focused on age. And through all the way through to, you know, stupid flavored whiskeys like um, uh, Screwball or um, Fireball. You know, I didn't, I'd never come across Screwball until recently. And somebody said, oh, no, you know, you know, Screwball, the, the peanut butter flavor whiskey. And I was just, I couldn't, I was like, what? There's a peanut butter flavor whiskey? So there are ways to reinvent categories. Gin has done it very successfully. Whiskey has done it very successfully. What do you think are the ways in which sake might attract some of those drinkers back and create new news? Is is it through flavor and sparkling? Uh, is there a movement for lower strength, uh, more sessionable drinks? Yes, there is a movement for um, making a lower alcohol um, sake instead of having it like 15% or 17%, um, maybe 5% or 8% alcohol. Um, there are it, There is a trend to make it in a lower alcohol content. And also there, uh, some of the bars, um, they do make some cocktails. So if you go to the high-end um, cocktail, um, I mean, hotel, there's, they do have a hotel bar where they uh, make you the Nihonshu cocktail which I think is in, interesting. And also there is some com- one company in Germany that makes like a sake tonic. And I think that is another way to um, enjoy the sake. So when you say a sake tonic, is that sake served with Indian tonic water or, or is it a, a tonic water which is flavored with sake? I, I'm curious. Uh, I think the alcohol, you know, is relatively low because you are mixing it with the tonic water but um still i think um it's all about the balance balance of tonic water and the sake maybe my my favorite um mix would be like half and half kind of but still it's you know even though you put it like half and half there's like eight percent alcohol content in it so there, there are ways to do it. And you mentioned earlier that there are flavored sakes as well. So yuzu obviously is, is a, 
I, 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 again, my simple understanding, it's a citrus fruit from Japan, so not dissimilar to a lime. Is, are there other flavors as well that, that people make, other flavored sakes? Um, I recently visited um, the brewery in Chiba Prefecture, and then they had the blueberry sake, and also they had the acerola sake and strawberry sake. So there are some breweries that make sake, um, use the sake, and mix it together. And then in in the terminology, it's called liqueur. So they don't call it sake, but liqueur is the category of the drink. Ah, okay. So to, to preserve sake's purity, it can't be called blueberry sake. It has to be called blueberry sake liqueur, or I guess, or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. And you mentioned Nihonshu as well. So can you explain, Is what is Nihonshu? Is it just a, a specific type of sake or quality of sake? So Nihonshu is literally means Japanese sake. So that means using the Japanese water, you know, Jap- Japanese sake rice, you know, in terms of brewing the sake. But when you say seishu, um, like regular sake, um, there are a lot of breweries in the world, actually. So when if the sake is brewed in the United States, then we call it seishu, not nihonshu. Nihon means Japan. So that means Japanese sake made in Japan. So I, I'm very surprised to learn that the sake is being made outside of Japan. You said sake is being made in the United States. That seems strange. Oh, okay. So uh, in North America, there are over 30 sake breweries right now, and they have association called like North America Sake Brewing Association. Um, it's, you know, getting popular over there. And interestingly, um, when there was, I read the statistics um, in the U.S. market, and many people who dine at the Japanese um, restaurants in the United States, they think that they're drinking the sake made in Japan, but 80% of them are drinking sake made in the United States, but they're not really aware of it. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm very surprised. How, how would I know, I guess, if I'm in a Japanese restaurant and the sake there, I'm just going to assume that it's, coming from japan like i guess uh, is there legal protection about what they can say i guess they can't say nihonshu but they but most people aren't aware of the difference also is, is the quality of the sake good in in the united states uh i tried brookgreen sake but they pretty they tasted pretty um good um it was available at a tokyo station there is a um, sake bar literally at the Tokyo station where I tried their sake, but they tasted pretty good. Um, and I'm just hoping that um, people in the States, if they like the sake brewed in United States, I'm hoping that they would start to discover more about the sake made in Japan because you always wanted to discover, you know, the origin, <laughs> origin yes. of sake, so... Is that what you and your company then tries to do is to help people connect with smaller sake breweries in, in Japan for, for export or for, for education? Mm-hmm. So our companies, um, my company is called Sake Lovers Inc., where we derived from the sake lovers community. So we've been running this sake fien club for like uh, over 10 years. And then 
we have like 1,000, over 1,000 members who love sake um, to get together. And we wanted to, um, we quit our jobs. We, um, I was um, working in a financial industry, but also my part, um, business partner, Yuki-san, she um, quitted um, the company, NAC, and we decided to step in to uh, support the small craft sake breweries. Um, when, when, when I think in back in 2017, one of our friends brewery um, decided to close down their business. And we were kind of shocked because we couldn't, uh, we didn't know that they were in a very difficult situation. And we wish we could, uh, we knew beforehand. So we could have done something. Um, we don't know what, but we could have done something to save them. So yes. we created this co- company, Sake Lovers Inc., to help support the small craft sake breweries to survive. And we're on a mission to export sake as much as possible. Um, how does what you're offering differ from the big exporters and the people who are, you know, producing much larger volumes? So I'm sure that you know there are a lot of companies, like especially like you know, if you're in the industry, there are like a big exporter in Japan as well. But we are only focusing on a small batch sake breweries. And those small breweries um, don't speak English, and they need a lot of help. When you check out their website, it's all in Japanese, and and even when you check with your phone, it's weirdly, um, you know, laid out. It's like yeah. very old fashioned, maybe like a twenty years old, or it's really um, bad layout. And they don't have time to even work on the website because there are only like three men working at a brewery and so forth. So we need to like step in and we need to have their story heard because they're so bad with expressing themselves because they think <laughs> we're kind of, you know, low key on like um, low key with the, you know, increasing the exposure and so forth because they're like a shy Japanese like people. And I would try to like um, tell them that they're really fantastic. They should be known. Um, They have, you know, like long history, like 200 years old. That is fantastic. They need to um, raise their exposure and we would like to help them support, uh, help and to export their products because it's fantastic. And I want the people to know not all the sake is Dasai. And of course, Dasai is probably the most famous brand. Um, they have the branch in New York. They're making sake in New York. But I want them to try out as many different kinds of sake because there's always a brewery out there that really, um, you know, that you may be able to find it um, interesting or you may be able to uh, like it. So I really want people to um, try out the small craft sake breweries products. Do you think that there's anything else that can be done to support the industry? So apart from people discovering sake and and trying to go back and find more interesting, smaller producers who are, um, you know, have a long history, as you say, and have different products. Is there anything else that can be done? I, I, I think, you know, when I speak sometimes about the, 
revival in the craft brewing industry. It's a brilliant combination of, you know, consumer interest and then state support where there's been, and certainly in many European countries, there's been tax breaks for um, producers who are under certain volumes. And that's led to a lot of um, renewed interest in investment. Is something like that required in, in the sake industry or, or is it already there and it just hasn't kicked in yet? Of course, in Japan, uh, alcohol is taxed and it is a, one of the important uh, tax, in, tax income for the government. So they do try to support the sake breweries to you know, sell more. And they do some help with the um, like sake fairs and so forth, like uh, trade shows. Um, they would fund for uh, trade shows. And if they want to go to overseas, they'll try to like find the like almost like a matchmaker. So they would have some um, events and try to like make breweries meet the importers and so forth. So they do a lot of those kind of things, but not necessarily in terms of funding. Of course, there are like local funding, um, business support, um, depending on the region, but it's quite difficult to, um, have funding. I know one of the breweries in Akita prefecture, they had a big, big snowfall. So all of their roofs, um, fell. So they don't have any roofs above <laughs> above the brewery, and they're um, it costs like two hundred million yen to you know even the build rebuild the brewery. So um, the brewer was trying to you know do something like a GoFundMe kind of a project, but unfortunately it didn't um, meet the funding price. So still it's. You know they don't. They still don't have the roof, which is kind of sad in a way. But there are a lot of breweries like that still can't have funding to recover. It's really devastating <laughs> when you see it. So I hear that the government in Japan is actually encouraging and paying people to come up with new ideas for sake and and encouraging young people to consume more sake. If they actually have a campaign called the Viva Sake campaign. What would you actually uh, encourage them to to do? Okay, this is a really uh, tricky question because I know that it created a big bash towards the Japanese um, government. It's more like the National Tax Agency's project in order to enhance people's consumption on sake especially targeting uh, towards younger generations. So they want to adopt the ideas or the pitches from the younger generation. Um, I personally think it's not a bad idea, but of course, from the people around the world, uh, there are a lot of countries trying to, you know, uh, trying to, how do you say, make people refrain from, alcohol consumption, right? Like trying to uh, help people with the alcohol problem, blah, blah, blah. But then <laughs> in Japan, um, Japanese government almost looks like uh, promoting sake and trying to trying people to drink more. 
but um, it is actually very important um, to support the small craft breweries to survive because uh, because I think I told you before, but like 50 sake breweries are losing business and um, it's like a dying business. But culturally speaking, it is sake is very important to our culture. So it's really sad to see the cultures dying. And I feel like even though it looks a little harsh and it looks a little um, weird promotion, but I feel like if there is any way to create the demand for sake, um, I hope there would be there is a way. Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent agree. So finally, how do people find out more about your company and get in touch with you to learn more about helping to revive traditional sake brewing? Um, my company's name is Sake Lovers Inc., but on Facebook, it's Sake Lovers Japan. Same with Instagram, Sake Lovers Japan. Uh, URL is sakelovers.jp. Um, we have a lot of sake making um, experiences. We uh, Next month, we'll be going to Saitama Prefecture at Gonda Shizo to make the sake. And also, we have many sake brewery tours. And if you're interested in learning more about sake, please do come and join our sake making um, tours or experiences. It's a great way to understand how much effort and love is put into sake brewing. And I really hope that can be an eye-opener experience for people who appreciate this traditional Japanese uh, drink. Brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic. I'm thrilled that we got the chance to explore sake in so much detail and understand the challenges which are in the operation, but also the opportunities for both uh, reviving consumption at home and actually increasing export abroad. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Will. I, I find that really interesting because I don't know the first thing about sake even though uh, I had a very interesting night on sake a number of years ago. Actually, I don't even know if you'd call the night interesting. The following day was very interesting. Um, I don't know if I told you this. Years ago, I went to Japan with one of my friends from college. So both both of us happened to be off at the same time period. I was like, oh, what are you doing for your holidays? I was like, I don't know. Do you want to go to Japan? Why not? Let's go to Japan. So we went to Japan, and uh, my friend Helen, she was, at the time, really obsessed with the Bill Murray Scarlett Johansson film. Uh, oh, yes. Lost in Translation. Yes, which is where we stayed when we got off the plane from Tokyo as like a little treat to ourselves to start off our time in Japan and then like stay in way cheaper accommodation thereafter. Um, but yeah. we, we really, really, really struggled with jet lag. So we decided to do a second night in, in that hotel. And on the second night, it was, uh, do you remember Arthur's Day? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? So this was the first Arthur's Day. So I had my Guinness. 2009. 2009. I had my Guinness in Japan, uh, in Tokyo, up on the, the rooftop bar. And then we thought, well, let's try a sake while we're here. And we knew nothing about sake. Didn't know that there was like warm sake, cold sake. There was loads of different varieties of it. So we asked for a recommendation. Yeah. We would get a glass each. A bottle got delivered to the table. <laughs> and so the story begins. And so the story begins. 
Um, I do remember we went back to the room and uh, I think I decided to have a shower just just to try and like knock some of the sake out of me. And uh, have you ever been to Japan? No, I, I'm, it's on the list. Right, there's buttons for things everywhere, and you don't really know what they do. <laughs> so the, the shower had like multi jet capabilities, which is which is brilliant because I I, I enjoy a shower that beats the crap out of you. You know, if you're not bleeding, leaving it, it's it's a waste of water pressure. Uh, however, I forgot to tell Helen that I had turned the sensors up the full way. So when she went in the following morning, I heard the sound of a body just smacking off the wall of the shower. The of the jet. Um, day morning, Helen got uh, an eye infection, and uh, I was struggling a little bit with the uh, quite quite a lot with the sake induced uh, after effects tired and emotional yep and we had to move to uh our next city on our journey which was osaka we were not well leaving the hotel um helen's eye was oh. swollen up to about twice the size of what it should have been and we got to the train station got on the bullet train to osaka got off at osaka wandering around looking for our hotel could not find our hotel anywhere we were following the map it was uh the streets all looks like they had the same names and we finally found a hotel where somebody could speak english and tell us where we were going wrong and it turns out we were in the wrong city oh my god we, we, yeah we, we were in a place called shin osaka which is effectively means new osaka so it was a suburb of the osaka where we wanted to be so hours later angry at life we finally got to osaka which, which does have a lovely aquarium that we went to the following day, but uh, did, did not have a happy first night in Osaka. Sake, then, I guess, has vivid memories for you, shall we say. Yes, but I would like to go to try it again. You just don't get a lot of opportunities in Dublin to, to try sake. And I would also like to try it in an environment where a bottle is not put down in front of you. Yeah, or you have enough people to share it with. Yes, two, two were, of us were a bit ambitious. Well, what I would say, the interesting thing for me was the assumption that I had made in my head before I spoke to Kyoko was that all sake was Japanese. But of course, you know, she was at pains to explain that's not actually the case. And that the majority of sake in, in the U S for example, is actually brewed in the U S. So that was an interesting uh, observation for me. And certainly the next time I'm in a Japanese restaurant, I'm looking to try sake. I'll be looking f- uh, a little bit more closely at the menu and understanding it, hopefully a little bit better. Thanks to uh, Kyoko. Do, do you know that they also have cushioned heated toilet seats in Japan? Do you know what? I think this is exactly the point in the conversation where we're just going to cut it I, off and I'm, say, thanks, honestly, Foxy. It, it, no, I, more, no more tips. I am amazed that the rest of the world has not copped on to this. It's, it's, it's pure <laughs> comfort. Right. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. good. Right. <laughs> Will, are you ready to visit the Desert Island Bar? Yes, I am. Well, we've got a we've got a regular coming back today. A regular? Well, semi-regular. So uh, you remember John Kelly? John's been on the podcast a couple of times. Uh, at this stage, he's nearly on the podcast more often than you are. Yeah, well, he's, to be fair, he's never forgotten to show up for an interview. So, <laughs> <laughs> John is one of our favorite guests. He's he's an absolutely brilliant and erudite and insightful individual. He is, and uh, thought who better to bring into the Desert Island Bar than than John and talk because he, he works with a lot of flavor in beverage. So quite curious yeah. to see what John is going to bring to the to the shelves here, our draft system or whatever he may choose. Do you have any preconceptions about what John might bring, do you think? Well, I remember the last time we spoke to him, he talked, uh, uh, did we talk about flavor at McDonald's the last time? It may not have been on the podcast. We might have just talked about that in general. 
we we were talking about different flavored milkshakes and uh, yeah, the way in which uh, people like Kerry Group, who John works for, actually partner with very large organizations like the likes of Starbucks, the likes of McDonald's, and and you know a lot of brewers and distillers to actually help plan out what flavors are are going both novelty and mainstream are actually going to feed into their pipelines over the next coming years. So some really weird, wonderful stuff. Yeah, so I thought maybe he might go for a milkshake because, you know, it's, it's cold, it's, yeah, that ice cream kind of texture in the desert. But John is also quite a practical individual, and I think he would get sick of milkshakes after a little while because they're quite dairy-heavy. So I, I, th- I think he's going to pick something a little bit more uh, a little bit, bit more oomph to it. Let's see what he does. John, if you were to be stranded on a desert island with plenty of drinking water, but you were allowed to choose one other beverage to bring with you, what would you choose and why? Oh, well, that's a great question. Well, I would choose Jameson cold brew coffee. And the reason I'd choose Jameson cold brew brew coffee is for a couple of reasons. First of all, being from Ireland, you think of Ireland, you think of Swirly Guinness, but you also think of whiskey and you think of Jameson. So a Jameson would remind me of home. The whiskey in it is obviously from uh, Cork in Ireland, and that would give you a a nice warming feeling um, on those cold, open (laughs) nights on a desert island. And I have to say, I love coffee. So if you combine whiskey and coffee together, uh, that's a wonderful uh, beverage to have. So the Jameson cold brew coffee would be my choice for my desert island drink. Fantastic. You could drink it in the morning when you get up, and you could drink it in the evening. You could, and you could even heat it as well. So you could have, you could have a, a hot whiskey in the evening time with the aroma of coffee. If I had matches, if I had matches to light the fire on the desert island, I'd have to find a way to do that. <laughs> Fantastic! That's great, John. Perfect. Thank you very much. Sums John up perfectly. He's got whiskey because you know, like it's the finer things, and also coffee <laughs> flavor, which is you're going to need it if you're going to be stranded on a desert island. Two in one. Yeah, exactly. Actually, well, uh, you don't drink tea or coffee. No. Where do you sit on coffee flavored beverages? I'm actually quite fond of coffee flavored beverages. I have a weird relationship with coffee. I really, really love the aroma of coffee, and I, I like the coffee methodology. I like discovering more about coffee. I'm really into coffee culture and coffee books. I have a coffee book here in front of me. Here it is. You know, I have Tristan Stevenson's Barista Coffee Guide, you know, in my hand. I actually read this kind of stuff. Um, I look at coffee videos. I'm very into coffee equipment. I just don't actually like drinking it. Is it the temperature? Is it the texture? I, I don't know. I was I'm inclined initially to say it was probably when I was younger, it was the bitterness. But, you know, I've managed just fine with the uh, stout. So, you know, I've kind of gotten over that. Um, it just is at this point, I actually don't want to drink coffee. I want to taste it, you know, uh, but I don't want to be hooked on it like an addict, like some people oh, I know. I'm not that bad. Um, but have, mm-hmm. have you ever tried like an iced coffee or a cold brew coffee, nitro coffee? Yes, yes, uh, they they can be enjoyable, but like I said, at this stage, I'm kind of taking an attitude where I, I want to go so far, but I don't want to go all the way, and I want to dip my toe, uh, you know. But I'm, I'm not going swimming. You're like an anti-coffee hipster. <laughs> well, my favorite though is uh, the um, scene in Three Colors Blue, where uh, Juliette Binoche is drinking her coffee with her ice cream and pouring it over, and uh, like that to me is the way to drink coffee, you know, poured over ice cream 
you know, looking beautiful on a Parisian street. There's a there there's, there's a name for that, but I forgot it. That was a joke, Will. I forgot it. I forgot it. Oh. I, 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 you know, the jet lag. Let, none of us none of us are coming out of this with any credit. <laughs> no. Let's wrap it up there. Before we lose our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> right. Thanks. Good luck, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Business of Beverages. It's been our pleasure to bring you this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and recommend us to one other friend or colleague. As ever, we are independently produced and self-funded, so we appreciate your support in listening, sharing, or reviewing this podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, where we go by at BizBevPod. If you'd like to support us further, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash BizBevPod. You know, you should probably do a, you do a little clip. So just before, before you listen to this episode, just be warned, one of us has been on a very long flight and has had a lot of coffee at the beginning of the showing. Oh, Brit, listen, go to bed. Right. Go to bed. Have a great week.